Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Christians, when they argue about baptism, as we tend to do, focus on a number of themes, a number of uh, subpoints. One of them is efficacy. We argue about what baptism does, if it does anything at all. Another one, popular argument, is mode. How should one be baptized? Should you be fully immersed? Should you be sprinkled? Uh, should you be just moist enough to know that something's happened? How is that to be performed? When we're not arguing about mode, we also like to argue about to whom. Should the sign of baptism be given? Should we only baptize those who have been converted and come to faith? Is it also appropriate to baptize infants? These are the things we argue about. And in the swirl of the argument, there's something about baptism that tends to be lost, something that we tend not to talk about. And its absence can be kind of astonishing once it's pointed out to you. We don't talk much about what baptism is. We talk about what it does. We talk about who should receive it. We talk about how it should be done. But we very rarely think about what baptism is. The why of baptism. The what of baptism. And as we look at Jesus' baptism, that's the question that we're going to be exploring. What is baptism? And, And what can the fact that Jesus receives baptism tell us about our own baptism? Why was Jesus baptized? Why was he baptized? What did Jesus' baptism mean? What did Jesus' baptism prove? These are the questions that we're going to ask our text. It can be a little bit of a head scratch or a little bit of a mystery to ask yourself, why is Jesus baptized? And part of that is because of what we think baptism is. The way that we treat baptism oftentimes makes it so that Jesus' baptism doesn't really make sense. It doesn't really add up. Uh, Scholars have looked at the history of Christianity and have tended to divide into two columns people's views of baptism. And, And the labels on top of those columns I want you to picture are magic and metaphor. I'm speaking non-pejoratively. When I say magic, I don't mean by something bad. I don't mean something bad. Just magic in the sense that baptism is an act that when it's performed, it accomplishes something. That's magic. On the other hand, we have metaphor. Baptism, the act of baptism, does nothing, accomplishes nothing, but it means something. It's a metaphor for something else. And Christians throughout the centuries, throughout millennia, have tended to find themselves in one of these two columns. The act of baptism as a kind of spiritual magic. If you think about it this way, uh, the act of baptism, some Christians believe, by its very nature, when you baptize, you accomplish certain things. One of the things you do, perhaps, is you wash away original sin. We are all born sinners. We come into this world tainted by original sin, and some will tell you that the magic of baptism, and the reason why you want to receive it, is because in baptism, 
that original sin is washed away. Some would go further than that and say that in the act of baptism, when the water hits the skin, the act of baptism brings about the regeneration of the one who is baptized. Baptismal regeneration, not based on on the faith of uh, typically an infant who who can't speak, who doesn't possess a, a faith of his or her own, but on the act itself, on the sacrament. It works the way we think of magic working. But if you look at baptism that way and then you transpose it, then you go back to the baptism of Jesus, things get a little puzzling because Jesus undergoes baptism, but Jesus doesn't need the magic. Baptism, according to that way of thinking, seems to be the solution to a problem that Jesus doesn't have. Jesus is uncorrupted by sin. He's born without the taint of original sin. Jesus is born not with a heart of stone that needs the Holy Spirit to work upon it in order to replace it with heart of flesh. He is in no need of being regenerate. So why baptism? Why does he need to be baptized? If you find yourself in the metaphorical camp, this is music to your ears. It makes no sense at all that Jesus would undergo baptism if baptism is what they say it is. And yet, if you find yourself in the metaphorical camp, this baptism of Jesus is still a little bit of a mystery because even though the act itself doesn't do anything, according to this view, it does symbolize something. Baptism is often seen as a first act of obedience, the thing that you're meant to do immediately after coming to faith, immediately after giving your heart to Jesus, immediately after you have repented of your sins and turned to him. And the baptism symbolizes that obedience. It symbolizes that turn, that transformation. No one who has not experienced that inner transformation should receive the sign of baptism, according to this view, which represents a little bit of a problem because Jesus does receive the sign. But the inner transformation? No. Jesus never repented and believed. He didn't need to. He never underwent that transformation from sinner to saint that we're told is necessary before receiving the sign of baptism, and yet he's baptized. Why? Why? The fact that Jesus is baptized seems to present challenges to the way that, that, that all of us view baptism. And if we want to understand his baptism, we need to look at baptism a little bit differently. Now, fortunately, when the question comes up, why is Jesus submitting to baptism, we're not the only ones who have the question. John the Baptist had the question as well. As we heard in our reading, when Jesus comes to John the Baptist, John the Baptist, he channels Peter before Peter is, is, is questioning Jesus. John's like, wait a second. You're coming to me for baptism? I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you. This makes no sense at all, Jesus. This just isn't going to work. John doesn't want to baptize Jesus like us. He's scratching his head over this. It doesn't seem to make sense. John's like, I baptize for the remission of sins. People ask him, 
why are you baptizing? It's for the remission of sins. And now a sinless Jesus comes to him and says, baptize me. And he's like, no, that's not what I do. That doesn't make any sense. And so Jesus gives him the answer. Thank goodness. Mystery solved. Jesus says, let it be so for now, John, because it behooves us. It's good for us to do this in order to fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? Jesus says it. It sounds conclusive, but what does it mean? Fortunately, this is one of those instances where uh, the connection between words in the Greek parallels the connection between words in the English. So when Jesus says to fulfill all righteousness, the word that he uses there is connected to the Greek word pleroma, pleroma, for fullness, word for fullness, in the same way that when we say fulfill, the English word fullness is kind of suggested by that. So you might think of this idea of fulfilling all righteousness as bringing righteousness to perfection, bringing righteousness to fulfillment. If, uh, pardon a bad analogy, if, if righteousness was a balloon, it's like Jesus wants to fill it so much that, that it's on the verge of popping. Righteousness has an abstract idea as the balloon, and what Jesus wants to do is inhabit it, to fill it, to stretch it, to, to, to put everything into it, that it could possibly hold perfect righteousness. And in, in order to do this, Jesus needs to be baptized. By submitting to baptism, he will do this. Baptism is a good thing. In fact, when Calvin turns himself to this question of why is Jesus baptized, he comes up with two reasons, a general reason and a specific reason, each reason with a different direction. The first is directed towards God. The general reason is directed towards God, and it fits very well with Jesus' words. Calvin says that the reason Jesus is baptized is that he might render full obedience to the Father. In other words, Jesus has come into this world, and he is determined to do all the good, not just to avoid sin, not just to avoid doing evil, but to do all of the good, to fulfill all righteousness, full obedience, perfect obedience to the Father is what Jesus is determined to do. And so he goes to John to be baptized to perfect that obedience. It is good to be baptized. But again, why? Why is that good? Why is it good? That brings us to the special reason. If the general reason is directed towards God, the special reason is directed towards us. Jesus is baptized that he might consecrate baptism in his own body, that we might have it in common with him. He's doing something that we will do, and he's doing it visibly before us, so that in taking on the sign of baptism, we see that we are taking on Christ, who went before us. So at least part of the good that Jesus' baptism accomplishes is that in baptism, he identifies with us. But there's more to it than that. There's something richer than that. can't really appreciate the fullness of the significance of Jesus' baptism until we start thinking of our salvation and of our baptism covenantally. One of the best books I've ever read 
on worship is by Hughes Oliphant Old. It's called Worship Reformed According to Scripture. If you were curious about why at Grace we worship the way that we worship and what the meaning behind it is, there's no book I would recommend more than this book, Worship Reformed According to Scripture. I want to read to you uh, an excerpt, the first couple of paragraphs from Old's chapter on baptism, because he lays out a covenantal connection that I think explains beautifully the significance of Jesus' baptism. So bear with me as I read to you this passage. So Old writes these words, The Gospels tell us that God sent John the Baptist to prepare the way of the Lord. John prepared the way for the coming of Christ by calling the people of Israel to repentance and baptizing them in the Jordan River. It was significant that John carried out his ministry in the wilderness and that he baptized in the Jordan. The wilderness had always been a place of repentance, a place of preparation, a place of new beginnings. It was in the wilderness that God had for 40 years prepared the children of Israel to enter the promised land. When the people had been prepared by learning the discipline of the law and by all the trials, wanderings, and testings that we read about in the story of the Exodus, then they were led by Joshua across the Jordan River into the promised land. That John exercised his ministry in the wilderness and baptized in the Jordan implies a new entry into the promised land. It implied the reconstituting of Israel and the establishment of the long-promised kingdom of God. Jesus, like many other Jews of his day, went into the wilderness to hear John and accepted baptism at his hand. In doing this, Jesus became the new Joshua, leading the new Israel into the new kingdom of God. It was by God's specific direction that Jesus had been given the same name as Joshua. The name Jesus is but the Greek form of the name Joshua. Jesus was baptized not because he needed to have his sins washed away, but because it was part of his ministry to lead the new Israel into the new kingdom of God. Through baptism, Jesus entered into the kingdom of God. And through baptism, the disciples followed Jesus into the kingdom. Even today... In baptism, we too enter into the kingdom of God, the visible church. Baptism is a prophetic sign at the beginning of our Christian life that we belong to the people of God. It is our entrance into the church. Last year, as we worked through the book of Joshua, we saw the significance of those events from the standpoint of the history of redemption. And now... What Hughes Oliphant Old is pointing to is the connection between that Old Testament history and some New Testament history as well. When we think about the ministry of John the Baptist and we look at it geographically, we see that there's a profound symbolism in what he's doing. People, in order to come out of the wilderness and enter into the promised land, must cross the Jordan. They must receive the water, that sign that brings them into the kingdom. Jesus, the new Joshua, walks through that motion out of the wilderness over the Jordan and into the kingdom, and he bids us, follow me. Follow me. I am your king. I am your covenant Lord. I have prepared a kingdom for you. 
follow me. Cross the Jordan. Jesus is the new Joshua. We are the new Israel. The church is the new kingdom. Crossing the Jordan is a picture. It's a picture of entry into the promised land. But also, when we talk about crossing the Jordan, there's something else that we talk about as well as crossing the Jordan. If uh, you go back to your old American hymns and you start singing about crossing the Jordan, uh, you are singing about your death. You're singing about the idea of passing from this life into the next because there's a connection here. It's a connection between baptism and death. There's a picture, a picture that is present in the act of baptism, in your baptism. In your baptism, you're following after Jesus. You're receiving the promise of new covenant salvation. You're entering into the kingdom, the visible church. Baptism, in other words, is a picture of what, by God's grace, will happen in your life. It is a sign of things to come. It is a prophetic sign of things to come in the kingdom and in you. That's why Jesus had to be baptized, because Jesus was the king of this new kingdom. He was the mediator of this new covenant, and this is the sign that marks all those who belong to it. So what did his baptism mean? That's not an easy question to answer because baptism is like a multifaceted jewel. It means many different things. It pictures many different things. A lot of doctrine, a lot of theology is summed up in the act of baptism. And yet, with all of those layers, I think there is one that predominates. There's one that predominates. And you see this in the way that Jesus talks about his own baptism. Jesus receives baptism from John in the passages that we've seen. But Jesus also talks about a baptism that is to come. And he refers to his crucifixion, his death, as a baptism. In Luke 12, 50, he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Jesus likens his crucifixion to a baptism. Because it is a summary act that will fulfill all righteousness. It is the thing he will do that fulfills all righteousness, that takes that perfect obedience and offers it up to atone for the sins of his people. In that sense, death is a baptism. It's a transition to pass from this life into the next. This happens at death. It's as if when you look at baptism... Jesus' baptism, it speaks. And it says, look, this is what I will do for you. When Jesus submits to baptism, his actions say, look, I will endure death for you and be raised again and be exalted by the Father because of it. And all of those things are present. In submitting to baptism, a picture of death, burial, and resurrection— When Jesus is baptized, the dove descends, the spirit descends in the form of a dove. And the voice from heaven declares, this is my son, in whom I am well pleased. All of it is there. Humiliation, death, resurrection, exaltation. All of it pictured in that act of baptism. 
There are more layers to baptism, of course. When we look at baptism, we also see a picture of repentance. John was baptizing for the repentance of sins. In that similitude that we see in baptism to crucifixion, there's also a connection to uh, the death of the old self and the life of the new self. In Romans 6, 3, and 4, Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we, too, might walk in newness of life. Baptism also pictures cleansing of sin. When Saul becomes Paul, and he's blinded, and Ananias ministers to him, Ananias says these words to him in Acts 22. Paul recounts them. Ananias says, And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So clearly in baptism, not surprisingly, is this picture of washing, cleansing from sin. It's significant too, though, that that when you're baptized, the name of the one that you're baptized in is the name of the one uh, you're covenantally linked to. So when Jesus gives the Great Commission, he commands the disciples to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're being baptized into the Trinitarian God, into his covenant community. In the same way that in the Old Covenant, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, that uh, all of those people in the Old Covenant were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So in the cloud, the pillar of cloud that led them in the sea, that they crossed so that they could pass over, they were being baptized into Moses. They were being administered by these signs into this covenant community of which Moses was the mediator. Of course, in baptism, the Spirit is bestowed. We see the Spirit descending like a dove at the baptism of Jesus, but it's also in baptism that we receive the Holy Spirit as well. Peter said to them in Acts 2, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Baptism in the New Covenant is the functional equivalent of circumcision in the Old Covenant. And one of the reasons we struggle to understand baptism is because we forget that connection between old and new, and because things aren't re-explained for us in the new, and we forget that you can go back to the old and and find the precedent, we don't quite know what to do. But if we go back, we see that there was a sign of covenant membership in the old covenant. And Paul makes the connection very clear in Colossians 2, 11 and 12. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So there you see all of this, the identity with Christ in his crucifixion and resurrection that's pictured in baptism. Also the parallel between baptism in the new covenants and circumcision in the old. So baptism, it isn't magic, but it isn't just a metaphor either. There's a third way. There's a third uh, possibility. And it's what we call in the Westminster Confession a means of grace. Baptism, like the Lord's table, is a means of grace. 
It is a thing that God uses to impart grace. Let me give you the definition. This is from the Westminster Confession, chapter 28. Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ, not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church, but also to be unto him a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, of his engrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of remission of sins, and of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life. So all of those layers that we saw from Scripture that are represented in baptism, all of them are encompassed in this idea of baptism as a sign and seal of the covenant of grace pointing to all of these things. And baptism has a real efficacy as well. Baptism actually does something. It's not just an empty metaphor. The efficacy of baptism is not tied to that moment in time wherein it is administered. Yet, even so, by the right use of this ordinance, the grace promised is not only offered, but really exhibited and conferred by the Holy Spirit to such, whether of age or infants, as that grace belongeth unto, according to the counsel of God's own will, in his appointed time. In other words, in plain English, baptism is symbolic, but it is more than just a symbol, more than just a metaphor. It is efficacious. It confers grace, the confession says, but not by magic, not by virtue of the act itself, but by Christ working in it and through it. It is a means of grace that God uses to impart grace, not always at the moment that it's administered, but in God's own time. That's what baptism means, but what does baptism prove? The events around Jesus' baptism lead to three declarations concerning him. In John 1, you get two of them. John the Baptist, after the baptism of Jesus, when Jesus approaches John recognizes him by declaring to everyone, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, a declaration of covenantal salvation. Here is the sacrifice that God promised in the book of Genesis, the Lamb that would be slain. Here he is. Here is the Lamb of God. That's one declaration. John gives us another. He's given a sign. You will know who the Messiah is. You'll know who the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit is because he's the one on whom the Spirit will descend and remain. When he sees that sign, he affirms, this is the Son of God. In other words, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the promised King. Then in Matthew, we get the voice from heaven making a declaration, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Father speaking authoritatively, declaring naming Jesus as the Son, exalting his divinity, saying, this is God in the flesh, Emmanuel. These declarations prove the sonship of Jesus, that Jesus is not just a rabbi, not just a teacher, not just a really good man, but is in fact the Son of God. He is the Lord. He is the King. He is the priest who offers himself up as a sacrifice. All these things are true of Jesus. But that declaration also proves something else. It proves the Father's delight in the Son. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is emotional language. A voice from heaven saying, I love him. I love him. 
my beloved son. I am well pleased in him. I take pleasure in him. I'm filled with joy in seeing him. It delights me to see him fulfill all righteousness. That's what the father is declaring. That's what is being demonstrated in this baptism. Jesus not only is demonstrating his determination to do all of the good that is possible, but the father declaring his satisfaction, his delight, his joy in all that Jesus has done and in all who are in Christ Jesus. Because the declaration of the Father's pleasure is not limited to the Son alone. The joy that the Father takes is not limited to Jesus alone. It is a pleasure, it is a joy that he has in us as well. In your baptism, the gift of salvation was pictured. When you look to your baptism, it speaks with the voice of the Father saying, You are mine. You are mine. Your salvation is an expression of the joy of the Father, of his delight. It's not just that God is showing mercy in in salvation. God is showing joy in, showing pleasure, exuberance. He delights in saving. He takes no pleasure in judgment, but he takes great pleasure in salvation. You think of Christ's baptism and you think and reflect on your own. Remember, the saving work of the Spirit in you is a work of joy. It's a work that God takes delight in. And that joy is a proof of God's incomprehensible and uncontainable love for you. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.